Well, we're going to go to the Lord together in prayer today, and I just want to extend the invitation. If you have a need going on in your life right now, why don't you just slip your hand up so we can be praying together with you. You don't have to tell us what that is, but there's something in your life or, or in the life of someone that you care about, and you've got that need right, on, right in the forefront of your brain right now. Just go ahead and slip your hand up. Okay, see a few of you have that, all right. Now, if you're standing next to somebody that raised a hand, reach out and put a hand on their shoulder or grab their hand and let's pray together as God's people. Lord, we thank you for your presence here in this room. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you. We thank you in a week that we're celebrating our nation's freedom, that we've got an even deeper and greater freedom because we're freed from sin. We're freed from that old way of living. We're freed from this, this worldly mindset and we're freed to see you as you are, to walk in liberty, to walk in freedom because of you, to taste abundant life. And Lord, today you've seen the hands that were raised. You know the stories behind those hands. You look inside our hearts and our minds. You know every intention and thought. There's nothing hidden from you. And today we come to you with these needs and we lay them at your feet. We thank you that you're a God who hears prayer and a God who answers prayer. Thank you that you're a God who loves us and is with us today in this place. God, we give you our hearts. We give you our full attention. We invite your Holy Spirit to do your work within us today. As we go to your word, give us ears to hear and eyes to see you as you are, to surrender to you today in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. So we're in John chapter 8 today, um, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. We did cover the first uh, part of, of John 8 a couple weeks ago when we were in our series on friendship and that story of Jesus with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, surrounded by people with stones that were ready to stone her. And so we did cover that a little bit already. Now, ironically, at the end of chapter 8, once again, there's people holding stones, and this time it's, to, it's, it's with evil intent toward Jesus himself. And so there's people that are looking at Jesus with intent to kill him. So that gives us a little clue as to where this chapter's going. It escalates. There's a lot of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Jews and even the Jews who believe in Jesus. A lot of uh, Jesus making statements and then an objection that's raised by the, the, the Jewish people that are there and then Jesus responding to that. So over, over and again. What Jesus is really pushing on in chapter 8 are the big existential questions of life. Now, there are different categories of questions, right? There's the, the simple, mundane, daily questions that your kids ask you a hundred times. When are we going home? What are we eating for lunch, right? Those are not the existential questions of life. There are some really big, important questions that, you know, you got to work up the courage to ask it like Samid did with Malaika earlier this year. Will you marry me? That's a big question, you should know the answer to that before you ask it, guys, just so you know. <clears throat> but that's not, that's not the existential questions of life that I'm talking about today. What would you say are life's biggest questions? Just go ahead and speak it out if you can think of what I'm, what I'm talking about here when I talk about life's existential questions. What happens when I die? Where am I going? What's my purpose? Any other ones? Who am I? Somebody said, why? Just why? Yeah. Very good. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're getting into the right idea. Jesus goes right into these questions about, how did I get here? Why am I here? Does my life matter? Where am I going? What's the purpose and meaning of life? These are the questions Jesus is probing in John chapter 8. And his hearers don't like his answers 
to a lot of these questions because he's convicting them of exactly where they are at that moment, where they've come from, and where they're going. And so that's the cause of some of the conflict here. So let's take a look in verse 12 as we find the basis for our identity, that first big question of life, who am I? So again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now again, the context of this entire dialogue is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the elements of the Feast of Tabernacles is lighting four gigantic lamps and then having a major party underneath the light of those lamps. So for Jesus to stand up in that context and say, I am the light of the world, it ties into the very celebration that they're a part of at at this particular Jewish feast. It also echoes back to a lot of Old Testament themes, probably the biggest one, that pillar of cloud by day and flame by night that led God's people from slavery in Egypt toward the land of promise. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, just like the Old Testament people of God did as they followed God in the wilderness, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's the statement. Now we hear the objection. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus gave them that idea in chapter 7. And now they're, again, hearing with earthly hearing things that Jesus is saying from a heavenly perspective. And so they're coming back at him and saying, well, you can't testify on your own behalf. That's not valid. Self-testimony is not valid. And Jesus responds to that critique in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, And where I am going. There's no conflict within Jesus himself as to life's big existential questions. He knows who he is. His identity is secure. His mission is sure and certain. He knows where he's going and he knows what he's about. Now he turns an accusatory finger at his objectors here and he says, You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It's not just Jesus uh, speaking on his own behalf, but also the Father is testifying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so he's dismissed their objection of saying that, you you know, you're just testifying on your own behalf. Oh, no, I'm not. It's me and my father that are testifying about who I am and why I am here. The light is verified both by its source and by its shining. So he's saying, I am the light of the world. Now, light should be enough proof in and of itself, right? If it dispels darkness, it's actually light. You know, you can call something light, but if it's not doing anything to change the darkness of the room that it's in, you have to really question, is that light testifying truly about itself? But Jesus is saying, not only does the light testify of itself, but the source behind the light, God the Father, also testifies that this is the light of the world that dispels the darkness, 
Now, this is not just uh, obviously a dark room. He's talking about the kind of deep spiritual darkness that traps and enslaves, and he'll get into that a little bit further in this conversation. So now, uh, Jesus is claiming that he and the Father both bear witness that he is the light, and so there's an additional objection raised by the Pharisees. They answer him in verse 19, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus gets the last word, and really when you look at that whole story, beginning in verse 12, who do you think Jesus is identifying his listeners with? Those who are in the light or those who are in darkness? You know, remember in verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And his final words to them are that you don't know me or my Father. So his listeners are in the category of those who are continuing to walk in darkness. Now, you know, maybe you're a church-going person. Maybe you grew up going to Sunday school, vacation Bible school. Your parents had you memorize Bible verses as a kid. Maybe you've come to Jesus as an adult and you didn't have all that background but you've gotten to a place, you know, maybe in your life where you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in the category of those who are in the light. And it's, it's easy to read a story about Pharisees and go, well, I have, boy, are those some bad people that I have nothing in common with. But I believe that God has put stories like this in his word as a caution to each one of us to be doing that self-evaluation and that reflection and seeing, is there something Pharisaical in this heart right here who's been around God's word for a long time, who's been sitting in a, a chair at church for a long time, is there a message I need to hear and personalize it and not hold it off there as if I have nothing in common with these Pharisees? So there's a caution that Jesus brings to each of us here today. Who am I? Why am I here? Who are you? Why are you here? What's the basis of your identity? Have you looked in other places for the answers to life's biggest questions? Problem is, we're, we're surrounded by messages in our culture every day about who you are, how you got here, where you're going, what the purpose of this life is, and it's easy to get the messages of this culture in our heads to clog our thinking and distort the truth that Jesus brings right here. So, you know, we can pursue other messages and answers to the questions of life and begin to think that life is all about getting ahead. Life is about accumulating. How did we get here? Well, it was by chance. It was by evolution. Where are we going? Well, you know, we don't really know, or we're just trying to live a good life, and then it comes to an end someday. And even as believers and followers of God, it's easy to get the distorted messages of our culture into our heads. Today we come back to God's word and we meet the one who knows who he is, who knows where he came from, who knows the basis of his own identity and his mission, and he's the only place that we'll find the answers to life's big questions. Jesus accuses those who are listening to him that day of not only not knowing him, but not knowing the Father who sent him. him. And so how could they possibly know any definitive answers to the biggest questions of their own hearts and lives? They're walking in darkness. 
So the, the dialogue continues in verse 21. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. It's a singular sin in this verse. It's not uh, a generic kind of, of sinning across the board. There's one sin that Jesus is speaking of, and it's already been unpacked for us in the beginning of the conversation. It's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of not knowing the Father and the Son. And I'm sure they have other sins as well, just as we do, but that's the big kahuna sin that Jesus is addressing here. And he's saying, I'm going away Then you will seek me, but you'll die in your sin. And again, he's speaking with heavenly wisdom to people who are only hearing with earthly ears. And they respond in verse 22. Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. You're close. There is a death coming. There is a sacrificial laying down of one's life for the glory of the Father. But it's not suicide. So you're off in your assessment, in your objection. Verse 23, he said, you are from below. Now Jesus is making explicit what I've already said. You're listening with earthly hearing to a message that can only come to you from God. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's two ways of living. There's a from below, of this earth, dead in your sins way of life. And then there's a from above, not of this world, freedom, deliverance from sin, life that Jesus offers. It's called the abundant life. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. We can't enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season and have a little Jesus tacked onto that. We can't live for self and be fascinated and obsessed with what this world offers and then have a little Jesus thrown into the mix. It's all or nothing. It's one or the other. And Jesus is confronting his listeners with that truth. So they said to him, who are you? They're finally honing in on that really existential question. Who are you? And he said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. What did he say at the beginning of this whole dialogue? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you. And much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. You know, we we think of this book as a book of what men think about God. A lot of people out there think that that's what the Bible is. Well, you know, you've got your religion, I've got mine. You've got your belief system, I've got mine. Uh, The governor of the state of Minnesota that we moved here from, the former governor, said religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. And, and really, that's the, that's the assessment that a lot of people have about any holy book, any religious book. You know, the, the Mormons have their Book of Mormon. The Muslims have the Quran. You guys have the Bible. Uh, there's, there's the sayings of Confucius. Everybody's got their own source of truth. 
You've got your own perspective. This is a book of what humans think about God. But Jesus has just flipped that all around as he looks at his hearers that day. And he says, I have much to say about you. The big questions of this life are answered here. This is not a book of what men think about God. This is a book of what God says about you and I and about the reality that we live in. You want the answers to life's big questions? There's one who holds the solution to why you're here, where you've come from, who you are, what your purpose is, what your mission is, where you're heading. If your life matters, there's only one who holds those keys and he looks into your heart and he knows you. He knows everything about you. Now, either that brings terror or joy to you today, right? Uh, If you're coming to him in humility and saying, I need you, thank you for knowing me and still loving me, then that message is a, a, a message of hope and joy for you today. You know, if you're in a place of going, I, there's a lot I want to hide from God, and then you find out that he sees you and everything is open and exposed and naked and defenseless before him to whom we must give an account of ourselves, then that's a terrifying message. But hopefully you get your heart to that place today where just as we're going to see in the story, as Jesus proclaims truth and he shows himself as the light, there are some who are gathered that day who began as skeptics And they began holding him at arm's length, but by the end of the story, they believe in him. And so Jesus says, uh, again, the end of his statement there, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. But, But they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus makes it clear in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Once again, Jesus is glorifying the only one who is glorious. That's his mission. When we join together with Jesus on his mission, we stand beside him as friends focused on the same goal of glorifying the Father. And Jesus is saying, I'm not coming on my own authority. I'm not bringing glory to myself. There is only one who has authority. All other authority is delegated. I'm not coming to glorify myself. There is one who is glorious. And yet, there is that phrase here that we see in John's gospel, that lifted up phrase that has a triple meaning in John. Okay, there's a lifting up on the cross. When Jesus' body is lifted up and he's in an elevated posture above the crowd who's looking at him suffering. So crucifixion is in that phrase. There's a lifting up in John's gospel that speaks of Jesus' glorification where the glorious one, the heavenly father, the creator of all life, glorifies the son. As he did at the baptism, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he's glorified again on the Mount of Transfiguration. And ultimately, that lifting up is when Jesus is lifted up from the tomb and when the Father glorifies him in that way by resurrection. So really, all three of those are contained in that idea of lifted up. Crucifixion, glorification, and resurrection. And Jesus is looking at his hearers that day and saying, you're going to understand pretty soon. When I am lifted up, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am he. 
and at verse 30, there is, a, there is a result in the hearts of some of the hearers gathered there in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, if you've been studying along in John's gospel, uh, you're kind of trained by now to be, to be reading a verse like that with some skepticism. Because what we've been seeing is there are those who believe, and then there are those who believe. There are those who are disciples, and then there are those who are disciples, right? There's kind of these two categories of the, the fickle faith and the genuine faith. We saw those who, uh, they really enjoyed the all-you-can-eat buffet uh, on the seashore when the bread was broken and the fish was distributed and everyone ate their fill, and they believed and came back the next day looking for another free meal, and that was about as far as their faith went. And there were the disciples who said, we're going to follow you until he started talking about unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And when he began to teach hard teachings like that, those disciples decided to go follow a different path. And so the question, you know, you read verse 30, hopefully it triggers that question in your mind as an interpreter of God's word. Was this in the category of genuine faith or fickle faith? So let's read on in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, so this is a subset of the the, the people that he's been addressing uh, so far in the story. He's going now to the ones who have believed in him and they're listening to him answering life's big questions and they're putting faith in him. They're starting to get a handle on why they are here. Jesus knows his identity. He knows his mission. Maybe I can answer life's big questions too. And they're putting faith in Jesus. He looks at them now in a smaller setting. And he says, if you abide in my word. What does that word abide mean? To live, to remain. Kind of those two combined exactly, right? So it's to live, but in a a way where you keep on living in it, right? So if you dwell, abide, live, remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I, in my notes, I kind of made a series of arrows trying to connect those thoughts, right? So it begins with claiming to be a disciple. It progresses to dwelling, abiding, remaining, living in his word, which then verifies that I am a disciple, which leads to knowing the truth, which leads to freedom, that's a really good progression. I hope you're all saying that's where I want to be. I want to I go down that entire path that Jesus has just laid out. Hopefully you don't get hung up on any part of that. Right? Like, you know, well, man, reading my Bible, that's hard. It requires discipline. Can I just skip that part? Can I just be a hearer of the word and not a doer? Because that would be easier too, right? Like at a theoretical level, you know, I know that God wants me to live for others and not for self, and he wants me to deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow him. I know that he wants me to live in believing community, to use the gift that the Holy Spirit has given me to edify the body and build up the rest of you. But, you know, in practice, it'd be a lot easier to just live for me, right? Well, don't shortcut any of these steps that Jesus has laid out because they're all interconnected. Claim to be a disciple, live in his word, which verifies that you really are a disciple, experience the truth and freedom that comes through him and through living for him. 
you know, they take offense to this sequence that Jesus has laid out. Especially the freedom part right at the end. They, they grab a hold of that. And in verse 33, they answer him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Does that strike anyone else in the room as a bit ironic? Okay, aren't these people, you know, okay, first of all, these are the ones that are believing in him and he's having this confrontation. Secondly, they are currently under Roman oppression. Okay, they're not a free people. Now, they have a lot of religious freedom in Palestine at this time in history, but they answer to a foreign country. And if you know anything about the history of the Jews, as you would think that people living in the first century would, you would know that before the Romans, it was the Greeks that dominated them. And before the Greeks, it was the Persians. And before the Persians, it was the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And before them, a little further back, it was the Egyptians. We've never been slaves to anyone. Oh, really? You've practically never lived a moment of your existence without being enslaved to someone. Jesus doesn't go there. I don't know why, but that's where I would have gone. It's an ironic statement. We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it then that you say you will become free? And Jesus even escalates it beyond what I just did. He doesn't start talking about Egypt and Rome and Greece and Persia and Babylon and Assyria. He goes to really the heart of slavery and enslavement that is common to not just the Jewish people, but to every man, woman, and child who's ever lived since Adam and Eve. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Uh, let me just take a risk here. Would you admit today that that is true by raising your hand? Is there anyone besides me who can identify with this verse? You know, where sin has this, it's got a double way of, of enslaving us. First of all, if you are a slave to sin, you sin. And secondly, when you sin, you are enslaved to sin. It sucks you further into that way of living, this worldly, from below, dead in sin kind of life. And Jesus points right to that very problem. But then thankfully he gets to the joy and the hope and the good news that comes along with that bad news. The slave does not remain in the house forever the Son remains forever. So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The, the metaphor, the analogy that Jesus is making is, you know, that if you're a slave, you don't get to hang out in the master's house forever. You come and go. Well, the, the, the master that he's speaking of in this, in this context is sin, right? So you are a slave that can never do anything to deliver yourself. You're coming and going in and out of that house that's owned and run by the master of sin. But there is someone who has the authority and the power and the position to step right into that world and declare you free, declare you innocent, declare you forgiven, declare you not guilty. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus goes right 
you know, he's, he's, the, he's the master of both households. He's the master of that household of sin. And he can come in and he's got the authority to deliver you from that. He's the master of the father's household because the authority has been placed within him as the son of God to declare righteous those of us who are in that category of slaves to sin. That would be a great verse for you to write on a post-it note, stick it on your bathroom mirror and memorize this week because, you know, the, the liar that we're going to learn about here, the father of lies, he'll come to you maybe daily and declare you to still be a slave to sin. And so this is a great verse to throw back when you're attacked with those lies. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In our struggle against sin, in our battle against sin, we're no longer, if we're in Christ, no longer slaves to sin. But now we're slaves to righteousness, Paul says in Romans. He continues, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And that's going to set up the the last confrontational discussion with his hearers. The point here in this passage that we've looked at is, is that not only is the basis of our identity in Jesus, but our freedom is in him. You know, that's another one of life's big questions. How can I really experience life to its full? How can this life have meaning? And there's people seeking pleasure, wealth, uh, financial independence is is a phrase that we've got. Looking for freedom in all the wrong places. And Jesus comes and says, I tell you who you are, where you've come from, why you're here, where you're going, and now the path to freedom, real freedom. Freedom not just from slavery to a foreign nation uh, or, or in our context maybe slavery to having to show up for work and punch a time clock you know, to where someday you can retire and, and do all the things that you... That's a, that's a very minor part of this life. Oh, you're a slave to Rome? Whoop-de-doo. I'm talking about sin. And Jesus comes and he delivers us from that entrapping and snaring way of life that we pursue our own desires, our own temptations, and we get sucked further and further down a path of self-destruction and harming others around us. And yet, who the Son sets free will be free indeed. So let's, clo- let's close out their conversation here at, at the end of chapter 8, verse 39. He's, he's now pushed on that issue of, um, you do what you've heard from your father. And he's about to really uh, cause them to pick up some stones. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Again, he's not, he hasn't made it explicit yet, but he's kind of repeating the same message. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We're not illegitimate children. We have one father, even God. Abraham's our father. God is our father. What are you insinuating? Just who are you claiming that our father is? Jesus. Jesus said to them, 
If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came out of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You know, there are, there are many methods and tools used to present the gospel that I'd encourage you to study those, learn them, practice them, begin to share the good news with the people around us who are ensnared in this trap and this lie of sin. They're walking in darkness. It's a this-worldly, of-this-world, from-below existence. Unfortunately, some of those presentations of the gospel leave out the bad news. And Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. He's told them about their sin. He's told them about their desperate condition apart from him. And it's really when you lay it out for people and say, this is the reality of where you are currently. And this is the end result of the path you're on. That people's hearts are softened to hear the truth that there is a different way. There is forgiveness and redemption available to you through Jesus. So don't short-circuit the gospel presentation by saying, you know, try a little bit of Jesus. You might be happier. That's not really good news. That's a placebo. Verse 44. Now now this is where he, (laughs) he really goes there. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You know, you live in this category. uh, Your father, the devil, he's a murderer and a liar, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is not, you know, the kind of sermon that really flies on a Sunday morning, right? Like, yeah, amen, preach it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, he doesn't get any response like that from, from his hearers this day. These are the ones that have believed in him, right? That he's having a conversation with and really pressing in on that on that faith, whether it's genuine or fickle faith. And so he's accusing them of being murderers and liars, of not believing the truth when it's right before them. And they, uh, at this point, really have no objection other than to attack him personally. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? There's really no substantial argument there. It's an ad hominem attack. You're just a demon-possessed Samaritan. Just resort to name-calling. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, Jesus started out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that promise is there, that hope is there, that offer is there, that truth is there, 
It's laid right out for you. Now you can continue to insist on living in this enslaved of this world from below kind of life that never brings satisfaction and hope. And you can double down on that and you can insist on it and you can justify yourself and you can proudly try to maintain some link with who you were back then and who you are today. And that's all going to lead to hopelessness and despair. But you have an opportunity right now to look to the source of light to really experience life and freedom. And if you keep his word, you'll never taste death. It's not just hope for this life, but it's hope for eternity. And yet now those who had begun with some faith and belief, now even among them, there's a rejection. And we start to see their real heart in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They're starting to think about the implications of what Jesus is saying. He's promising eternal life to those who believe in him. And yet they can think of some of the heroes of the Jewish faith that are dead. And they're going, wait a minute. If what he's saying is true, what is he saying by implication of our heroes of the faith you know, the Old Testament heroes, Abraham and the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. They're all dead. Is he saying that they don't have this truth and this life and this freedom that he's offering? So Jesus responds in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. There there was always throughout Jewish history the expectation of a Messiah who would come. Especially in the book of Isaiah, you see that repeated over and over. A messenger of God, God's king. Uh, You see it in the books of Samuel. A a king that that God promised to David in that Davidic covenant. There will always be a descendant of of, of King David on the throne of Israel. And so there's been this expectation through all these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that you've just referenced. They were all looking forward to this day when the Messiah would come. And now he's standing right before you and you're not acknowledging him here. You're not listening to his words. You're not seeing the truth of who he is. We live in a culture today that's looking for the answers to life's big questions. And, and as hair-pullingly aggravating as it is at times, you can lay it right out for people and say, well, let me tell you the answer to whatever question you've got. Let me introduce you to him. And yet they still choose the path of darkness from below, this worldly, ensnared in sin, living. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old 
And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now there are those who um, would dispute the divinity of Jesus today. And, and it's a heresy that's existed throughout church history. They would say, you know, Jesus was just a man. He was, a ma- he was an important man. He was a man that God chose to use. And usually their intention is a good intention. It's a, a monotheistic heart behind that heresy. Where you want to make sure there's only one God. And you want to really elevate monotheism. And so to do that, there's some people that go a step too far. And they say, well, Jesus can't be God because then you got two gods, right? And so in that, in that idea, one of the things that they'll try to do and to create a biblical case for Jesus just being a super important man and not God is they'll say, you know, there never was once in the Bible where Jesus himself claimed explicitly to be God. I'm telling you right now, that's exactly what this verse is. Jesus says, before Abraham was, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He uses a, a, a key word here, I am. If you don't know it, that's one of the names of God. That's one of God's self-reference, you know, just that being verb, the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And if you doubt that I'm correct in this, explain to me the next verse in any any other way. So if Jesus is not making a claim to divinity, then why does this happen in our last verse? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Stoning is the, uh, the, the, the consequence of blasphemy. It's the, the penalty for blasphemy. So uh, in the Old Testament, if you claim to be God, that sin, that, that wrongdoing is punished by stoning, that sin of blasphemy. And so his hearers that day who know a lot more about the Old Testament than I do, because they're living at this time in history, right? And they've lived in that. They've breathed the air of that Old Testament understanding. When they hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, they grab stones. And they're hearing blasphemy, a claim of divinity. Jesus explicitly claiming to be God. So there's a good uh, verse for you to keep in your back pocket next time you hear someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, really? Let's take a look at the end of John 8 together. And so now the the end scene here, we we don't really know exactly how this unfolds, but we've got a crowd of angry people that Jesus has, you know, poked the bear with the stick. You're of your father, the devil, you're murderers, you're liars, you're just like him. And now he claims to be God, and they've got stones in their hands, and then all we have is this end verse, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's easy to overlook a verse like that, but how does that happen? I would put this in another category of one of the miracles that we've been seeing in John's gospel. The same Jesus who turned water to wine. The same Jesus who raised the dead. The same Jesus who cast out demons. The same Jesus who multiplied the fish and the loaves. When it's not his time to die, the people around him who are angry and holding stones and accusing him of blasphemy, they can't take his life. It's that later in the story, he gives his life. He lays his life down and it's all on his terms. 
Well, today as we, as we uh, conclude this story in John 8, and hopefully you're not holding those Pharisees at arm's length and saying, well, I'm glad I have nothing in common with those guys. I'm glad I have nothing uh, to relate uh, to my own life from this story that we've read today. Like I'm never tempted to continue to walk in darkness, to choose the path of from this world, from below living. Let me just challenge you today to apply this to your own heart and life and not just be a hearer today, but to be a doer of God's word. What do you do with Jesus? Because as you come to him today, he knows his identity, he knows his mission, and even more than that, he knows exactly who you are, where you've come from. There's no surprises to him. He knows where you're going, the plans that he has for your life. He knows who you are today. He tells you why you're here. He frees you from sin. And today I hope you can open your eyes to see him. He is from above. He is glorious. He's life-giving. He is truth-illuminating. He's God with us. And today the choice is yours. Either pick up a stone and reject him or fall to your knees and worship.